When Apollo 11 launched on July 16, 1969, there was only one college journalist accredited by NASA to cover the launch and landing. His name was David Chudwick. So today we talked to David to find out what it was like and to talk about his book called I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. We'd love to hear from you, so please tell us your thoughts on what we're doing. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 172 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 172 of the Space and Things Podcast. We recorded this episode late last week as I'm away in Bruges this week. So unfortunately, we won't have a what caught our eye in space section this week. But we'll be back with that next week. We've still got a very interesting podcast for you this week, though. Yes, we do. Today, we talked to David Chudwin, author of a wonderful book called I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. David was the only college journalist accredited to cover the 1969 Apollo 11 launch and first landing on the moon. At age 19, he was one of only a handful of teenagers with official press passes at Kennedy Space Center for the launch. Chudwin has been a writer since high school when he was a reporter and an editor of his high school newspaper, The Torch. He then attended the University of Michigan, where he was a reporter and an editor of the Michigan Daily, becoming the managing editor for the class of 1972. During this time, he covered the Apollo 11 launch for the College Press Service Wire Network and The Daily. He was also selected to attend a summer journalism program at Ohio State University, and that involved an internship on the copy desk of the Cleveland Press. He decided to go into medicine instead of journalism, but as a result of his Apollo 11 experiences, he developed a lifelong interest in space exploration. Chudwin has written about Apollo 11 in a variety of media, including magazines, hobby publications, and online. He has spoken about Apollo 11 at schools and space meetings, including Space Fest in 2016. Chudwin is also well-known in the space community, and astronauts such as Charlie Duke, Fred Hayes, Jack Lausma, and Al Warden wrote endorsements for his book. So let's find out more from the man himself. Never miss an episode. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a review. This is Space and Things. Welcome, David, to uh, Space and Things. So we asked most of our guests this question. So what piqued your interest in spaceflight before Apollo 11? Was it a singular event or several events? I'd have to say it goes back to when I was seven years old and the Russians launched Sputnik. I was born mid-century in 1950. When Sputnik was launched, the first artificial or satellite, uh, it raised quite, quite a ruckus because it was in the middle of the Cold War, and uh, so it kind of provoked a national debate uh, about uh, space exploration. And as a seven-year-old kid, I was absolutely fascinated. And then also as a young kid, I enjoyed uh, science fiction and uh, read uh, novels, uh, so-called juvenile novels, written by uh, Robert Heinlein and other authors, uh, you know, uh, about space as well. 
about that same time, uh, Walt Disney and Werner von Braun uh, collaborated on uh, TV shows that appeared that uh, showed um, visions of uh, space travel uh, in, in the immediate future. I think the combination of those piqued my interest. So let's fast forward to the time of your book. I was a teenage space reporter from Apollo 11 to our future in space. So tell us how you got a media credential to cover Apollo 11. A friend of mine, Marvin Rubenstein, we were childhood friends since fifth grade. Uh, we both shared an interest in space and had been to a couple of uh, uh, Chicago area space events. For example, after Gemini 4, they had a special uh, event for students that Ed White and Jim McDivitt were at. And wow. the same thing after Gemini 9. Uh, Tom Stafford and, and Gene Cernan. So we had a joint interest in space. In December 1968, uh, we were both home over holiday break from the university. I was at University of Michigan then. And we started talking and Marv suggested now that we were 18, uh, we should go down and see a launch. To me, it sounded like a good idea. Uh, we looked at the schedule for upcoming launches and we saw that um, Apollo 9 was scheduled for March and Apollo 10 for May and Apollo 11 for July. Well, July was perfect because that was right in the middle of our school break. Um, so we decided to try and, um, you know, make this come to a reality. As far as um, obtaining credentials, um, there were two hurdles to leap. One was to get approval from the senior editors of the Michigan Daily, where I was the university newspaper there where I was on the staff. That was the easy part. There was nobody really that much interested in space there. They were all like humanities and history majors and political science majors and stuff like that. So there was no problem, even though I was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year at that point, there was really no problem um, getting press credentials. The other thing was that they had a limited travel budget and, uh, seeing a rocket takeoff was not on their high list of priorities. <laughs> but when, when I agreed that I, we would uh, finance this ourselves, uh, they agreed. So um, we were approved for press credentials from the Michigan Daily to, to cover Apollo 11. The harder part was with NASA. Until that time, um, NASA did not uh, accredit student uh, journalists uh, because they considered them more students than journalists. There were a few teenagers who were employed by other news organizations who had press credentials, but before us, there had never been any uh, college students as such uh, accredited. So when I contacted NASA, the, you know, I was informed of this policy and I was somewhat discouraged. One of the daily senior editors was going to Washington to head up the college press service uh, for the summer. The college press service was a consortium of about 500 uh, university newspapers. And um, he was a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, he said that he would go and talk to NASA public affairs. Uh, so he actually went in there a couple of times in person and made the argument that we weren't going to be covering it just for the Michigan Daily, but for all the college newspapers. And uh, apparently he was quite persuasive because the middle of June, uh, we got a letter from him saying that NASA had approved uh, press credentials. So. Um, I'm a very small wow, footnote nice. to hit history in that myself and Marv Rubenstein were the first college journalists to be accredited as such to uh, cover a NASA event. Let's talk about the book then. So I love this book. Obviously, it, it's a great story. One of the things I like about the book is the presentation of the book. 
Um, I like that there are photos scattered throughout it as opposed to just having a section in the middle that have got photos. And obviously the photos are just a little bit more special in this compared to other space books from the era because they're your photos. And I think that's what makes it so personal, this book. You know, you're looking at a photo of a launch or a photo of a press conference and it's from your perspective. You're looking at the crew walking out of the crew quarters and that's your photograph. So it, that's, a, that's a really wonderful thing that really puts you in the moment of that story and like I'm there with you. So there are some really wonderful examples as well. Shots of celebrated astronauts that weren't on Apollo 11 but were obviously involved. Charlie Duke, Alan Bean, Jim Irwin. One of the photos was taken by Jim Irwin of you and Alan Bean, which I think is wonderful as well. Uh, Bruce McCandless is in there, Deke Slayton, and, and of course the Apollo 11 astronauts. And Werner Von Braun's in one. Obviously you said he sparked your interest in this in the first place. So you have all those great things going on. So do you have any memories of those legends and those moments which particularly stand out? Yes, um, uh, se several. First of all, as far as the photographs, um, one of the, the best things I ever did was ask my dad to borrow his old Kodak camera. He had a old Kodak camera nice. from before World War II that had a German retina lens and was, you know, and several decades later was still operational. And so I just, I asked him for his camera and he agreed. And I went out and I bought three rolled Kodachrome color slide film, each 36 exposures. So I had an opportunity to take over a hundred uh, photos. So it was a little bit different situation when you used film for photos than now with electronic photos where you can take, you know, five or six shots of every scene. I had to be very, very selective uh, as to what photos I took. But the um, Kodachrome slide films, uh, as long as they're kept cool and in the dark, last for literally for decades. And so what I was able to do was to um, get these uh, scanned the second time, most recently um, scanned by a professional photographic lab. And so that's why the, um, you know, there, there's such good high resolution. Uh, it would have been totally different if I would have brought like an Instamatic camera or something like that. And as mm -hmm. far as um, specific events that really stand out, we flew down coincidentally on the same plane to Florida as Rose Cernan, uh, the mother of astronaut Jean Cernan. Wow. We had met her briefly uh, in 1966 at the uh, Gemini 9 event that was held in the Chicago area because Jean's from was from uh, Bellwood, a suburb of Chicago. So she was there with her daughter, Dee, and we got on the same airplane and talked a little bit. The plane made a stop in Tampa, and we flew into the Melbourne airport. Well, waiting there to greet her was uh, Alan Bean, because her, her son, Gene, was occupied that day. So um, she asked us what the schools we went to, and then she introduced us both to Alan Bean. And there were three other men there with <laughs> Alan Bean, also picking up members of their family. And they happened to be Jim Irwin in a blue flight suit, uh, Charlie Duke, and Bruce McCandless. So within 20 minutes of landing in Florida, we met three of the 12 men that would later walk on the moon in the first untethered spacewalker. Uh, <laughs> and um, the luggage was delayed, and so we kind of stood around uh, with them and, uh, and took some pictures. The second experience that really sticks out in terms of the photos and things like that was this NASA press conference with the so-called Center Directors Conference. Uh, this was two days before the launch, 
It was at the NASA Apollo 11 News Center in Cape Canaveral. There was like a small auditorium with a, a stage. And seated there were really the pioneers of spaceflight. I mean, I was just in, absolutely in awe. Um, Werner von Braun was there, head of Marshall Center. Uh, Kurt Debus, head of Kennedy Space Center. Uh, Bob Gilruth, head of Manned Spacecraft Center, now Johnson Center. And uh, George Miller, the head of Manned Spaceflight at the time. And uh, so I was just feet away from these people and was able to experience this press conference. And this was the press conference where Werner von Braun was asked uh, what he compared the Apollo 11 launch to. And he said it was when amphibians came from the water to land. At the time, I thought that was a little bit of hyperbole, but he was probably right. Yeah, that's amazing. So then there's the Apollo 11 launch itself, which you chronicled in your photos from the crew's um, walkout to ignition. So what was the feeling at the Kennedy Space Center press site, maybe before and as, you know, Apollo 11 Saturn V cleared the pad? Well, even before the launch, we had some incredible experiences. Went on two press tours that got us within a couple thousand feet of the Apollo 11 Saturn V. And, um, and then also um, into the launch control center on the actual firing room floors of two of the three uh, firing rooms. And then to the vehicle assembly building, to the inside, and also to the roof of the vehicle assembly building. Oh, wow. You know, just heightened our anticipation. So in terms of what it was like the morning of, of the launch, as you mentioned, we got up very early to, to take a NASA bus to what was called then the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building, now known as the Armstrong Operations and Checkout Building. And we watched the astronauts uh, walk out. It was really inspiring to see them take their last few steps on Earth before leaving for the moon. Um, we then took a bus back to the Apollo 11 uh, press site across the water from, from the pad. But we saw a bus on the side that was going to uh, the VIP site, which is the other side of the, the van. And there, there were um, 5,000 special invited guests, uh, ranging from former President Johnson uh, who I photographed, um, to um, TV personalities such as Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon and and uh, a bunch of uh, um, IPs there. And that's where we watched the launch from. Uh, from the gra There's a grassy area in front of these three VIP stands. We were about three miles away from Pad 39. That was the closest you could get without guaranteed injury or death if the rocket blew up. <laughs> Uh, and so that's, wow. uh, you know, that's why we were at that distance. And, um, I'd say the mood was just incredible anticipation. What still amazes me is that the launch day and time were set months in advance, July 16th, 1969 at 932 AM. And that the rocket took off precisely on time. We were very concerned that uh, there would be holes, scrubs, delays, things like that, and that we would not be able to stay uh, in Florida for the launch because I just had a, a one-week window where I could take off from a, a summer job I had. And so um, the fact that it took off on time, I think, amazed us and we were very grateful for. As far as the launch itself, it was a life changing experience for me. Wow. I'd seen pictures, uh, you know, I had seen television, 
but there was nothing like actually experiencing this. Uh, as I say, we were three miles away as the um, countdown uh, went down at T minus zero, flames shot out due to flame deflectors to either side of the rocket. And it was totally silent. Light goes faster than sound. And so as the rocket started to rise off the launch pad, at first we couldn't hear anything. It was totally silent. And then the rat rocket very slowly began to rise. And it's different to Saturn V than, say, a space shuttle. Uh, with a space shuttle, once the solids go off, the, it really takes off quickly. It took over 10 seconds between ignition and for the base of the Saturn V rocket to clear the tower. That 10 seconds to those of us watching seemed like an hour. Uh, it seemed like forever. In, <laughs> in fact, I was concerned at the time, just momentarily, whether the thing was actually going to lift off or not. Uh, it went up so slow. But then when it cleared the tower, the sound started hitting us. We saw the launch, but more importantly, we felt the launch. There were waves of sound pressing against our chests. The ground was shaking. And as the rocket rose, we could actually feel the heat from the F1 engines, the five engines putting out seven and a half billion pounds of thrust. It was a visual experience, an auditory experience, and and also a tactile experience to, to see the launch. So the rocket started going up faster and faster. And after a couple of minutes, all we could see was a bright dot of light in the sky. This July marks the 55th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch. But to me, it seems just like yesterday. It made such an overwhelming impression on me. Uh, it was an um, incredible experience. Since your experience covering Apollo 11, you've been a regular at Space Fest and Astronaut Scholarship Foundation events, and you've also attended many Space Hipsters-related events as well. And then you also were able to reconnect with many of the astronauts you met at KSC in 1969. So what has that been like? They say you should never meet your childhood heroes, but I have and I've enjoyed it tremendously, uh, and they're all wonderful people. You know, I was most proud that uh, for this book that uh, Charlie Duke uh, agreed to write an advance praise, a blurb for it. As you know, Charlie was the capsule communicator for Apollo 11 on the landing and then later walked on the moon with Apollo 16. And uh, I've gotten to know him a little bit through the years, and he was happy to, to write an advance praise for the book. Another astronaut who was involved with Apollo 11 was Fred Hayes. He was backup uh, lunar module pilot for Apollo 11 uh, before going on Apollo 13. Marv and I met Fredo after the uh, launch. He closed out the Apollo 11 capsule the night before the launch and then watched it from the uh, inside the launch control center. But afterwards came out to the VIP site where we were at and uh, we, we met him and I got a couple of quotes from him, which I just in, in my story. And then years later, uh, nice. you know, I had gotten to know him. And again, he wrote a praise for, for the book. So it's, it's really been uh, exciting to meet some of the people that were involved in Apollo 11 and to get them to know them a little bit a few, few years later. Do you know what's really interesting? We were asked the whole of your experience of what it was like to, to be there and to witness the launch. And I completely forgot that you would have had to have turned in a copy and, and actually written something. And that was why you were there. 
How many pieces did you write about your experiences for the newspaper? Or did you get away with not doing very much work at all? How was, how was it? Oh, no, I was, I was a, a working journalist for this. I mean, so Marv and I, before the event, um, a week or two before the event, wrote a, a piece um, for the college press service, uh, you know, previewing the upcoming Apollo 11 mission. And then there I wrote articles for the, um, you know, daily uh, articles for the Michigan Daily. Uh, about each of the events. Journalism was different then, okay? After the Apollo 11 launch, you know, these days people would rush to their laptops, write the story, push a button and and send it off. Well, it was a whole different uh, style of journalism then. What I did actually after the launch was go back to the motel and take a swim in the swimming pool. And then later that afternoon, went back to the news center and typed out a, a story and that evening, I phoned in. I dictated the story over uh, the phone to uh, someone at, at the Michigan Daily. Uh, you know, there were, were telegraphs and teletypes then and things like that, but we were a very low-budget operation. And so the way we sent in stories was to actually phone them in. My routine was to, um, you know, write a story at the end of the day and then telephone it in uh, if the Daily was going to be published the next day. But one of my my proudest bylines uh, was uh, my story when uh, of the actual launch. They published it along with a AP photo, a press photo. I had no idea any of my uh, photographs would turn out because they were on color slide film, and they weren't developed until two weeks after I got home. And so I had no idea if any of these <laughs> yep. photos turned out. And you can imagine I was pleasantly surprised when I got the boxes of Kodachrome slides back and, and they were um, uh, outstanding. Sorry, I, I was smiling when you were talking about this because this reminds me of when I first became interested in journalism when I was you know, a teenager and, and before I joined the Navy and how quaint everything was. You had to call stuff in. And you had to wait for the film to be developed and stuff like that. Like it wasn't like nowadays everything is instant. To me, it's fascinating because it truly was a different time and a different way of doing things. And I I don't know if it's better or worse now, honestly. I, I think there's something to be said about what you all were, what was going on back then. I mean, the idea that after covering a major event, you would go back to the motel and take a swim in the pool before filing a story is, you know, like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of from the dark ages journalistically and uh, that. But uh, again, we, we didn't know better at, at the time. It's interesting, speaking about the technology, the space program was a great impetus for miniaturization of computers. Uh, at that time, uh, computers were these big mainframe computers that would take up an entire room. And the through MIT uh, in the instrumentation lab there, they developed the Apollo guidance computer, which at that time was a um, tremendous ad- advance. But my watch has more memory than than the Apollo guidance computer had. I think that's one of the great contributions to technology of the space program. Now it's interesting at the at the launch control center they allowed us to go down to the floor of the firing rooms, the control rooms, and they had all these um, banks of consoles, and the consoles had uh, like uh, video screens and 
dial up telephones and stuff like that. At, in 1969, the Launch Control Center was considered the height of technology. And uh, yeah. if you go back and, and look at what they had then, it's, it's amazing we ever made it to the moon with the technology that, yeah. that was available then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So obviously, I'm a big fan of, of uh, I Was a Teenage Space Reporter. I think it's really a great book. You have a new book project in the works, right? Tell us about that and when we can expect to read it. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dave, for the plug. I appreciate that. All plugs are gratefully accepted. <laughs> I have a new book coming out called The Magical Decade, and the subtitle is a, uh, a personal memoir in popular history of 1965 to 75. During that decade, besides covering the moon landing, I was in the middle of a lot of stuff. And this ranged from uh, pop culture events, like I was at the 1965 Beatles concert in Chicago, um, to um, being tear gassed at anti-war demonstrations, to um, being saved from arrest uh, during the May Day demonstrations in Washington, being saved from arrest by uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton, uh, to um, <laughs> uh, you know, a- attending all kinds of uh, musical events. And speaking of musical events, in the summer of 69, I had a dilemma, okay? Marvin and I had been planning to go to um, Cape Canaveral to see a Saturn V launch for a while. But then I heard about this music festival that was going to be held in upstate New York um, called Woodstock. Tickets were available, and so I had to make a choice between Woodstock or Apollo 11. I ended up choosing Apollo 11 because I figured there would be other music festivals, but this was the first time men would land on the moon. It turned out that Woodstock wasn't just any music festival, but I, I still think I made the right choice. As a musician, I think you definitely made the right choice. Hey, do you want to know one of my little bugbears? Uh, it's something that really grinds my gears. And that is that whenever there's a music festival and, and lots of small little village festivals do this, say, for example, oh, Oxford, let's call it, say, say Oxford, where I am now. And they would set up a music festival and call it Oxford Stock. As if Woodstock was a festival in wood. <laughs> <laughs> as if stock has become the, the term for festival. It's like Watergate, yeah. right? We now put the word gate on the end of anything, which is a, some kind of controversy, as if water, the, the Watergate scandal was a problem with the water. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what the Watergate was about. Anyway, that's just something that grinds really? my gears, a digression. But whenever I hear about Woodstock, I always like, uh Anyway, <laughs> that, so that book sounds amazing. When, when is that likely to come out? Because I definitely need to get that. Okay, well, again, it's called The Magical Decade, and I'm excited. I just got the, the preliminary page proofs yesterday. Uh, and, uh, oh, nice. You know, I've been working on this awesome. book for three years. I think it'll really appeal to, um, to baby boomers, but also younger people who want to know what it was like in the 60s and 70s. The publisher is actually English, Lid Publishing, and the publication date in the United Kingdom is uh, March 7th, and the publication date in the United States is May 7th. It's uh, exciting. Awesome. I can't, I, I can't wait to read it because I loved your first book so much, so I, I, this will be, be awesome to add to the collection. Yeah, this sounds r- way up my street, so I'm looking forward to that. David, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really wonderful. I've had a smile on my face throughout the whole of this interview. It really has been great, so thank you very much. Yes. Wish you all the best with the new book as well. Thank you. Uh, um, Emily, I've known you, it seems like, forever, and you've 
done a great job with Space Hipsters. And David, it was great to meet you for the first time a year ago Thanks. at Cosmosphere for the Apollo 17 50th anniversary. Yeah, almost a year ago today, we were sitting opposite each other having a nice steak steak dinner, weren't we, at the, at the airport? That was a beautiful night, that was. In, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to find out what guests are coming up in the future and submit your questions, head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. Um, Emily, we're into our episode 172, and it feels like we have grossly neglected Apollo 11. It does. We haven't really talked about Apollo 11 much. I think we talked about the movie maybe a little bit or something yes, like that, but yes, I don't yes. I don't think we've talked about the mission a lot really. Like we we've talked about a lot of other things that are probably more obscure but not Apollo 11 itself. Which is really strange cuz I don't know about you Emily. I I don't know why we've done this because it brings me so much joy Apollo 11. I don't know if we've just not done it because it's obvious or whatever, but I literally was sitting there listening to David talk about him being there watching the launch and his experiences around that. And I couldn't help but smile. I was I was getting emotional yeah. thinking, oh my God, you Me were too. there. You were there. Like it's, it's such an important thing was a, a, a Apollo 11. It's such an important thing. And, and I doubt whether you and I would be, even be doing this if Apollo 11 hadn't happened. Like there's so many Absolutely. things we could pinpoint as, as to, to what got us into it. As a kid, I was obsessed with, with those three guys on that mission yep. and that mission. And we, we, we don't talk about them enough. We don't talk about Neil Armstrong and Buzz enough. We, we, I think probably because it's obvious, maybe. I don't know. But it's really yeah. nice to actually talk about it, isn't it? It's really nice to hear stories about what it was like being down there and, and the excitement yeah. and the buzz. And, and as he was talking, I was just visualizing those scenes from the Apollo 11 movie uh and the, in the colors and the and the what people were wearing those city paper hats that people were wearing yeah the RCA I think they were from RCA the RCA like little sun type hats yeah yeah <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit this and I don't mean to interrupt you I kept thinking of Johnny Carson and his little ascot yes. why was I thinking the little tie he was wearing I was like why am I thinking about Johnny Carson and his little tie like why am I thinking about this but I don't know why I remember that from the movie so vividly. Maybe because he was Johnny Carson in the in the States was like a, an icon. He was more than just a late night guy. He was Johnny Carson. I don't know yeah, why that yeah, stuck yeah. out to me. Him and his little him and his little scarf. Yeah, when it was bl- blisteringly hot at nine thirty in the morning in Florida. I know. Don't I'm worry, like, I wear a scarf. A scar- <laughs> why is he wearing that, man? It was hot because I've because um, he was too cool. Because <laughs> yeah, he was cool. Exactly. No, that's another thing. I was like, have you noticed people in the movie when they were watching the launch are wearing like suits? And yeah. Tie- you're like, in July, it's Florida, Florida. is musty hot. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably hotter now because thanks due to global warming. But it was hot back then, though. Yeah. Trust me. It was still hot back in the day. So, And they're all wearing like suits, pants, and pretty dresses with, you know, back then you had to wear a hose with the dress. And oh, my God, pantyhose yeah. with the dress. It was a different time. Yeah. It was a it was a different time, you understand. For the 50th anniversary of the launch, there was a, a, a kind of recreation of the countdown at the at the launch viewing site um, at Kennedy Space Center. And I was there. And oh my God, it was hot. We were there from 7 a.m. until yeah. 10 a.m. or whatever it was, just sitting out on the bleachers. Oof. I couldn't believe how hot it was. I don't think I've ever been that hot 
and not been in a sauna. Yeah. It was so hot. And I know that doesn't mean it was that hot on in 1969, but you can imagine it being that hot. It was probably around that. Yeah, yeah. It was hot. Trust me. It was it was hot. It's Florida, so they were they were cooking out there and to watching the clips of everybody wearing like the nice outfits and stuff like that. It's just like, wow, you nowadays it'd be shorts and a t-shirt type of thing or shorts and a, I don't know if they allow tank tops at the press site, but still it'd be <laughs> a different flavor nowadays. Yeah. That struck me too. in a, in the movie is that everybody was dressed so formally and I was like, Oh my God. If, uh, if anyone is listening and wondering where we're getting these images from, uh, we, we are talking of course about the Apollo 11 movie, which came out in 2019. And if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, you really do. But also I, yes. I can't recommend David's book enough. I just find it absolutely yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. And as I said, the presentation within the book, it's just a really nice book to hold. The, like, the cover, I, I don't have a hardback version of it. I've got, a, but, but even the cover is, it feels nicer than a normal paperback. It's, it's a really yeah, nice book. It's not like a flimsy is, paperback. No, yeah, yeah, it's a really nice book. So I, I recommend getting it. And I'm super excited about this new book that he's got. To me, that's the me golden too. era of so many things going on. You can, you can pinpoint so many key moments of our current history as being between 65 and, and, uh, and 75, maybe a little bit earlier, going going back a few more years as well. But that's such an instru- inst- instrumental part of our modern history comes from culturally yeah. as well. As we talked, you know, we talked about Woodstock oh, there yeah. and, and other things. There's, there's plenty of things happened around that time. So excited about that book. But yeah, that was that was just great hearing those stories, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's that part of me, and we brought we brought this uh, a little bit up during the interview. There's that part of me I love to hear about how people covered news stories back then as a journalist. Yeah. When I first started out, I worked in a I, I worked at a newspaper. Personally, I, I love newspapers. Even I know people argue that they're a dying medium and all whatever. I, I still think there's a place for newspapers. I, I have a subscription to newspapers.com. I use it for research because. They're a marvelous research tool if you're looking to make a timeline of stuff. But um, I wasn't in a newspaper at the time. But when I was first at school, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be a journalist, you know. So I took a, a few courses and stuff. And yeah, it was as rudimentary as you have to call. You have to call a story in, or you have to fax something to somebody. <laughs> you know, remember fax machines? A lot of young people probably don't where you had to actually have a document and you had to send it. And then it made this loud ass noise for a few yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, seriously, though, I mean, that was the kind of technology we were dealing with. And things weren't instant. Like if you had to file a story for a newspaper, depending on what kind of newspaper it was, it may come out the next day. So it's already kind of old news, you know, or it may come out in a different like, yeah, the next morning or the next evening, you know, because some papers at evening or morning editions and stuff like that back back of the day most of them don't it was a completely different time and how news was disseminated uh there was no 24-hour news cycle the yeah. network stopped at midnight normally and then they would they would play the national anthem and then go to like a color bars you know wow. and they were done for the evening I, I don't know how it was in other countries but in the states back of the day there was no 24-hour news cycle that really started in the in the probably the 80s and early 90s is my guess when it really kind of started up but i just love david's memories of that because 
His recollections are so rich. They really do a great justice to what was going on at the time. You know, his and he has such amazing like stories like, yeah, he gets off the plane and who's there like friggin Charlie Duke. Jim Irwin, Alan Bean, Bruce McCandless, they're just hanging out. Yeah. Hey, Jim, can you take a photo of me and Alan? Yeah. And Jim Jim Irwin just walked, you know, he's going to be on the moon in a couple of years. That is insane to me, you know, and I hate being one of those people who looks backwards and is like, yeah, man, we, things were, things are better back then, but maybe they were, maybe they were better back then. I don't, I'm not sure we would get that experience now where, you know, you just have those kind of casual like moments of you just walk into something like that. And you have that memory and you have those photos, you know, and it's just astonishing. Nowadays, it's just, I hate to say it, you have a lot of space stuff on the internet and a lot of it's the same. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) You know, a lot of it's the same. There's a wonderful thing about having time, isn't there? So I love that idea of he watched, he watched the launch, went back to his motel, had a swim. Yeah then sat down and did his article. Exactly. There's an element of he had a little bit of time just to compose himself and just to think and and, and take in what he had seen before putting pen to paper. He still had a deadline. It still had to be done by the end of the day, so it was still fresh. But you've just got that time. If you're a sports journalist now, for example, if your article isn't published within the second of the game finishing... It's oh, it's already out of date. Exactly. Yeah, news is totally different nowadays. One of my favorite films is Dumb and Dumber. Right? It's a it's a trashy comedy, but but <laughs> there's a, there's a scene where Jim Carrey's in a restaurant, and as he's walking out, bear in mind this is in the nineties, right? And as he's walking out, they've got a framed newspaper that says uh, "Man on the Moon," and uh, and he turns around and goes. Oh my God, we walked on the moon as if he's only just found out. Like it's, it's hilarious. Anyway, he probably the did. point being yeah. was that a lot of people framed those newspapers of, of that event uh, or people kept, would, would keep the front page of the newspaper or a newspaper from key days in their life because that's how they learned about stuff, right? That was, they, they yep. were so important back then. People found out that we walked on the moon. Quite a a lot of people would have found out the next day when it was on the front page of the newspaper. And you would then devour that paper for every bit of information that was on there. Yeah. And we don't have that anymore because obviously you just pick, you know, the moment something happens, pick up your phone. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And and it's there. And and, and as as you say, is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. But there's certainly, I've got a romantic viewpoint of how it was. And me too. uh, I, I like that. I like that idea of having to wait to find out about something and, and being a bit more patient and and therefore embra- enjoying learning about whatever it is. And I don't know, just, just ha- having more attention on the thing that you're learning about at that point because you're not being distracted by a zillion other things all at once that are happening. We are bombarded with information yeah. and, and comment on what's going on instantly whenever anything is happening. Whereas actually there's a really wonderful thing about being in the moment or finding out and enjoying the moment where you found out about it. Um, Where were you when you heard was more poignant back then than now? Because now it's, oh yeah, it was just on my phone. Yeah, now it's an update on your phone that comes in exactly. And no, I totally agree. You know, I'll, I'll 
keep this comment short, but I remember back in the back in the day collecting like newspaper clippings of like space stories that I thought were cool. So I cut them out, you know, put them in a scrapbook or put them in my like a a, a trapper keeper because that was the news back yeah. then, you know, and you would watch the news at night on TV and stuff like that. But it's 100 percent a different planet nowadays. And I don't know if it's better or worse. So yeah. who knows? So, yeah, so, certainly talking to David and reading his book, it's just a wonderful thing. And, and I'm really glad we spoke to him. And I'm really glad we focused a little bit on Apollo 11 as well. I think that's that's good fun. So, as always, the unedited interview will be up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things, and information on David and his social media uh, and where you can get his book will be in the show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com uh, or just clicking the link in the description of this podcast in your podcast provider. That's such a mouthful. I need to find a better way of saying that, but I don't have one. So that's what it's going to stay like for now. That is it. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> Past to present, Sputnik to Starship. This is Space and Things. That's it for this week. We'll have another new episode for you next Thursday, so please make sure that you're subscribed on your favourite podcast platform. A big thank you to those who continue to be part of our Patreon community. We're getting closer to our goal of having 100 members by show 200, so please head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things if you'd like to sign up. And thanks to those who share the podcast with your friends. Shout out to Jen Jones for her incredible efforts on TikTok and Instagram to help spread the word about what we're doing. And thanks to those who have shared their Spotify rap. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. You've been listening to the Space and Things podcast.